It's such an honour, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here. And it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work and you've given it a lot of thought and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it. And I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. This is episode 203, a bite-sized episode that runs for around 20 minutes. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. In this podcast, I chat to authors about their books, the writing process, and how literature can change the world. Today, I welcome Kate Murdoch. Kate exhibited widely as a painter, both in Australia and internationally, before turning her hand to writing. Stone Circle, a historical fantasy novel, was set in Renaissance Italy and was a first in category winner in the Chaucer Awards 2018 for pre-1750s historical fiction. Today we talk about her new novel, The Orange Grove, about the passions and intrigues of court mistresses in 18th century France. Welcome back to the Words and Nerds podcast, Kate. The last time we spoke on the podcast was episode 89. Thanks, Danny. It's great to be here. And today we're going to chat about uh, The Orange Grove, your latest novel. Now, congratulations. This morning I saw on Twitter that you're a finalist for the second time for the Chaucer Book Awards. Yeah, yeah, I'm really happy about that. Going back to The Orange Grove, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what this novel is about? The Orange Grove is about a mistress who basically has to choose between her position and morality. So she's... uh, the headmistress um, in an 18th century chateau and she's quite good friends with the duchess and everything is going along relatively smoothly until a younger much younger mistress enters the mix and the duke falls in love with her and so the duchess is extremely jealous and wants to stage this malicious campaign against her and Henriette my protagonist really isn't keen to go along with that So that's when the problems begin and it goes in a bit of a downward spiral (laughs) from there. And it's easy to say externally or, you know, from the outset that you would always choose morality. But when you're in a situation where, you know, then you have to choose position, you have to choose whether you can put food on the table, it adds a lot of complexity to the choices that we would want to make compared to the choices that we are forced to make. Yes, exactly. And I think the situation for people at that particular period in time in France was you know, really quite desperate. And a lot of the, you know, from the um, third estate, which was the, the peasants and um, and also um, the nobility, um, it was you know, a question of just fighting for status because if they didn't, they were basically um, falling to the bottom of the pile. There was no one to support them. There was no one to pick them up. So, yeah, it was imperative that they look after their interests in that way. And so I thought it would be really interesting to explore how that would affect both romantic and um, platonic relationships um, and also the kind of choices that these people would have made. I find the idea of status very interesting. How much do you think society has changed? I mean, we, we talk about in Australia we live in a classless society, but it's not necessarily true is it 
No, I think there still are classes, but I think it's a lot more um, hidden and people don't like to talk about it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's kind of the elephant in the room a little bit, isn't it? It's an, it's an awkward thing. Absolutely. But it certainly exists. And I think it's, it's probably in some ways becoming more pronounced um, in recent years. Now, this book is set in 18th century France. Tell me about the research you undertook for this book. Yeah, well, I, I did a lot of research um, from learning to read tarot cards to uh, reading <laughs> primary source material like the diaries and the memoirs of um, various figures at the time, such as Louis XIV, obviously, his memoir, um, Madame Sevigny, who wrote letters to her daughter, which they were probably the most um, influential um, things that I read in terms of how I sort of applied that to the story. Um, and also um, a lady called Elizabeth Charlotte Madame Palatine, who was the sister-in-law of the king, who um, was a German and very down-to-earth and um, just told it like it was. And so her uh, memoirs are really interesting to read as well. Um, I went to France as I was writing it. I didn't, unfortunately, get to go to Blois, but I was in Paris and I sort of looked at portraits of nobles in the Louvre um, and so in terms of not being able to see the town, I did a lot of Google mapping, just sort of walking the streets, working out which landmarks I was going to feature. Um, yeah, it was. It sort of went on and on. There's movies, non-fiction books, uh, fiction books, uh, yeah, you name it. I just kind of kept going. And I, and I kept going throughout the writing process as well because I find that that gives me a lot of impetus to, to keep going. Mm, that sounds really interesting. And the, the breadth of research that it sounds like you did sounds uh, very interesting. I always like to know, because when you do sort of delve into deep research, especially, you know, going back into the 18th century, there's always some surprising things or interesting or fascinating things that you uncover. What was the case for you? Did you find something really surprising about your research? Well, there are a lot of surprising things, but I suppose one thing I didn't expect was just how religious they were. Um, they were so pious, and that was something that I gathered from uh, Madame Savigny's uh, letters. Was she was very much that way, and in every letter that she, there was a reference to, you know, I've gone and seen the curate, or I've gone and had a consultation with, you know, this particular priest, and um, there was just so many references to that thing sort of weaved into her daily life and so as a result of that I did make a couple of my characters more religious um yeah so I think it was just something that they I suppose when you think about it there was so much um death <laughs> you know, there would have been a lot of disease and just people just dying left right and center and they had to find a meaning in that they had to find a way to sort of uh push through and I suppose that was the answer for them yeah, that's really interesting, turning to religion in, you know, unexplainable or tough times. But I also think, you know, the idea of religion is interesting, particularly with this novel, because, you know, how does this then parallel or work with someone having multiple mistresses? Because that doesn't seem in line with <laughs> with the beliefs at the yeah, time. It's kind of stretching the rules a little bit there, isn't it? <laughs> but um, I suppose if you had enough uh, money, you could kind of push things as far as you wanted. You could kind of, you're outside the rules a little bit. I made a mistake earlier when I was talking about the estates. Um, second estate was an ability. And, and I think the thing about that is that, you know, how I was saying earlier about how uh, 
class is hidden now. It was very much then it was just so open. The mm-hmm. fact that they actually had that delineation and that was spoken about openly and everybody knew which of those estates they were in and the king was exempt. He was just a god. He was outside of it. So out of all the people who could, you know, bend the rules in terms of the religious um, side of things, he could do that the most. And he did. He absolutely did. Mm, I Um, I definitely see that. A lot about all his mistresses and and what he got up to. And, um, yeah, he certainly enjoyed um, doing whatever he wanted. Suppose if you've got someone at the top doing that, then as a noble, if you had the capacity to do that, why would you do it, you know, you're going to follow that example or you're going to, if you can. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's human nature to get away with what you can. I don't think that's yeah. necessarily a great quality, but, you know, you see, no. it, you see it a lot. But I think, you know, bringing back to what we were talking about, class, and when you see privileged people exempt from that, I, get, I think there's a bit of shame in that these days and you think, no, no, like that shouldn't be the case. So I think at least we've evolved a little bit from there. Yes, that's right. People are a little bit more, you know, I mean, there are people that sort of splash it all over yes. social media, I suppose, <laughs> and you know who those people are. But, um, it, yeah, it's kind of seen as being a little bit in bad taste. Going back to um, what you were saying about your research, I thought it was really interesting yeah. that you learned how to read tarot cards. Tell me about this. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a bit unexpected because I, I basically bought a deck because I just wanted to familiarise myself with them and I started reading about them, you know, just Googling it and just learning. And initially I thought, oh, God, this is just ridiculous. I just, <laughs> how does anyone believe this stuff? And before I knew it, I was doing readings for myself. <laughs> 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 so I just got completely into it. And, um, yeah, I mean, look, I think there might be there's something in it. Um I'm certainly no expert at reading them, but I can do a basic reading for myself or somebody else. And it was certainly useful for writing those scenes because I felt that if I had absolutely, you know, if I knew nothing about it, I just couldn't write them authentically. Mm, So it was just something I had to do. Because you have a tarot reader come to town, so that needs to be written quite authentically, doesn't it? Now, coming from someone who knows zero about tarot cards, tell me about, you know, you said you could read your own cards. Can you reveal... In a very basic... Yeah. Can you reveal what (laughs) what they mean, what the cards mean, or what kind of result you got, or whether it was true? Um, I... Look, I think... Well, something like obviously like the death card, you know. <laughs> that means the beginning, the three, though, right? <laughs> it can. It can. It can. But you, you know, it can also mean something quite bad. So huh. it just depends whether you're going to take a positive or a negative spin on it. Mm-hmm. And that's the tricky part, you know. How optimistic are you feeling on that particular day? Oh, interesting. <laughs> so in terms of what you see, um, the same goes for three of swords. You know, that one with the three swords going into the heart. Mm-hmm. Like you can sort of see that. That could be seen as heartbreak, but it could also be seen as, uh, you know, a conversation that really clears the air and where people communicate really openly and, and you know, repair things. Wow. I love that interpretation. So, so it depends on the tarot reader you go to, depending on how they're feeling, depends on the yeah. outcome they give you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a bit tricky. And I'm certainly, like I said, I'm, I'm – far from being an expert in it. I just learnt it to the point where I could write about it and give myself some kind of, you know, 
possibly false comfort. (laughs) (laughs) If you're doing it the positive way, of course. (laughs) Exactly. I'm in a good mood. (laughs) I'm sort of experimental in my attitude to Mm. it, if you know what I mean. I don't sort of take it as complete truth. I think, well, okay, that doesn't look really good, but maybe I just, maybe my instincts were off today and I just picked the wrong cards. (laughs) I I love that. I love that. I love it so up to interpretation. Well, I'm That's quite great. An optimistic person. Now I loved parts of this book, and and one of the really absurd parts in it was, you know, when the five mistresses they're sitting together as the maids serve them breakfast, and it's an absurd yes. situation. But in this context, in this novel, it's just it's very normal, isn't it? Yeah, that's what they do every day, and they know each other quite well. And um, they're not all friends, but some of them are, um, as would happen with any group of women. Um, you know, it's remarkable how you know, this really did occur. And, I mean, I, I came, in my research I came across a particular quote um, about this noble at the time who not only had all these mistresses, but he would go out, you know, for a jaunt in his carriage and he'd have about six carriages following him and it was each mistress's carriage wow. behind. So when I read that, that was basically it fired something in me and I really wanted to explore you know, whether they did get along and what those relationships were like. Um, and I, but I didn't want to do it in a way that was, I mean, obviously there is you know, quite a bit of um, cattiness that goes on in the story, but I wanted some authentic friendships to blossom as well because, yeah, that's a bit more realistic, I think. Mm. And what were the motivations in your research of the women wanting to or becoming mistresses? Well, in a lot of cases, it's financial straits, mm-hmm. so they're just um, really needing, particularly in the case of Celine. Yep. Um, she has a husband with a gambling habit. Um, she's, yeah, basically just wanting to live a, a comfortable life, and um, that's her motivation. Um, in the case of Henriette, she has a secret that she's harboring that um, she needs money for and, again, wants to live comfortably. So... I think it's just, you know, because being uh, poor in that society was so horrible and mm. so um, not only in terms of physical, the physicality of it, but in terms of how people saw you, um, that people would do anything to escape that. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, in this book, love is where it starts to get a bit messy, isn't it, and starts to complicate yes. things even more. Tell us about that. Well, yes, I mean, uh, Henriette really doesn't expect um, that to come along um, and nor does Letitia. So they both have love kind of blossoming and in both cases it's kind of, uh, like it's not necessarily appropriate. It, it's kind of, well, particularly in Letitia's case, it's not. In Henriette's case, it's kind of accepted because she's no longer a favourite of the Duke, she's kind of on the outer. So, um, yeah, without wanting to give too much away. No, no, of, we don't want to do that. <laughs> but, yeah, it is a bit complicated. And it, the other thing about it is because of the person that she falls in love with has a way of operating in the world that's quite different to her mm. and has diff- isn't as idealistic. So that kind of forces her to examine um, you know, her way of being in a way and, and maybe being a little bit more accommodating a little bit more understanding of other people's flaws 
Mm, absolutely. No, it was a very enjoyable novel and I just thought it was just so absurd. And I love reading about, you know, 18th century or 17th century, you know, Europe because their lives – you know, in a way, the social structures, etc., they're very different. But as human beings, we haven't changed much. And I find that really right. interesting how we adapt and survive through these very different times. Yeah, I find that fascinating as well. And that's what drives me to write historical fiction is, is the similarities that, that exist in terms of people wanting love, wanting, I think that the basic um, human drive is, is to want love and acceptance and I certainly, uh, with a couple of my characters um, who feel like they're lacking in love, and it, that's what drives them to this completely deranged mm. <laughs> stage in a way because it, it, it's so, um, they feel so insecure about that. And yes, and I think it's um, really interesting to explore. Absolutely. Because we can only work within the context and the society we're in. We can attempt to challenge it, we can, you know, go against it, but we, we still have to live within the confines of it. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, and if you keep upping the stakes and things get more and more difficult, you know, what then it's almost like a pressure cooker and all sorts of things can can happen. Um, so, yeah, I was – I don't think I realised when I started writing it just how much of a pressure cooker it would end up being because <laughs> um, I'm a pants and not a plotter. But it just kept – yeah, um, the ante just kept upping and I kind of went with it and, um, yeah – I know you've done this many times before in your novels, but how does it work when you have to do a lot of research but you're still pantsing? How does that, how do the two come together? Well, I do a lot prior to actually starting. So I, the reason I do that is because I need to be able to visualise it and it's almost, it's a weird process because it's like I instinctively know when I have enough to actually start um, and it's through doing a lot of, um, novels are actually really helpful if, if there's fiction because obviously um, novelists you know create those visuals um, for me so once I can see it and sort of feel what the stakes were for those people at that time that really helps me um, find a foothold I suppose and then as I'm going along I continue to read all these things and watch things and you know, do as much as I can to kind of input all this information in so that it's continuing to um, be enriched as I write. So the only time I haven't done this was when I started my fourth manuscript in August last year and I was on a residency and I needed something to work on and I hadn't done that, you know, that initial um I hadn't done as much as I normally would prior to starting. So that was quite tricky. And um, and as a result of that, I've ended up writing that in a completely different way to how I normally write. I haven't done it as sequentially. I've done it as a patchwork. And I think that's because there was stuff that should have gone in at the beginning, but I didn't have that knowledge there at that point. So I'm now having to input since you've had to write in a in a different way and use a different process what do you prefer or what works or is it just different or unique to every book that you write well I never expected I would write a non-sequential book because I'm I'm a very ordered person very um I mean being a pantser is about as wild as it gets for me (laughs) (laughs) 
So the fact that I'm actually doing a patchwork is, is a little bit alarming to me, but having said that, it's starting to really, I think it is starting to, um, it's coming together and, I've, well, that's 71K, so you'd hope so. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, um, I would prefer to write sequentially is the answer to that. I think it feels a little bit more ordered for my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this one, it's just, it's like a, a different entity that I'm just kind of, working with and I'm just happy that it's coming if it's coming in a strange way at least it's coming <laughs> and I like now that we've <laughs> added patchworker to pantser and plotter another p to our, <laughs> yeah, our process of writing right. <laughs> yeah just to make it that little bit more complicated <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not sure how much you can say about your new work but can you tell us anything about it well there's two actually mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if when I you last spoke to me whether I where I was at with the glass house which is the Sicilian book um, that's about a girl who was orphaned in the 1908 earthquake in Messina in Sicily and she's adopted by a wealthy Palermo family who are quite dysfunctional and yeah that's sort of her story and um, it's about her um, close bond with another girl that she met at the orphanage fourth one um, is called the shifting tide and it's a dual timeline set in uh, in wartime World War II Croatia on Havar near Dalmatian Islands and 1960s Melbourne in Fitzroy. And it's three generations of women and um, they're kind of the secrets that they hold and how this affects um, their relationships. Why do you write? I write for the connection, I think. I, I write because, um, you know, when you have someone read a story and they actually they pick up on your themes or they they uh they understand your character motivations or they um you, know, you get that kind of feedback that they've understood what you're trying to convey to me there's no better feeling it's a privilege in fact to be able to do that thank you so much kate it's it's been so lovely Thanks, to speak Danny. to you again and about this new novel it's always lovely chatting with you i loved european history i particularly have a bit of a thing for 18th century <laughs> um, yeah. novels and it, it is it is and it's fascinating because it's so far removed like you said from our societal structures and yet human beings we just don't change that much and that's what I find really intriguing about then how we react when we're thrown into all these different contexts so a fascinating read so thank you so much for your time and for writing it thanks so much Danny for having me